Hello and welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast where we take a deep dive into all things historical, environmental and folklorical. I'm Jenny and I'm in my wetsuit. And I'm Annie in a waterproof archive hat. Alright, sounds like we're ready for the episode. Or a trip outside in the Scottish summer. (laughs) It's not stopped raining for a week. (laughs) (laughs) Jenny's lying, we've had beautiful weather. My tomatoes are doing brilliantly. Because they're inside. (laughs) (laughs) Well, today we're taking a light-hearted splash into the marvellous Loch Fyne. I was reading an old book by John Stoddart and I came across his visits to Loch Fyne in 1799 and 1800. Let's take a little dip into a curious extract of his experience, and then we can leave it behind in the 19th century. The sweep round the head of Loch Fyne was promising nothing extraordinary, so we crossed the loch instead. We took a ferry from Cairndu to the hamlet of Cowell. The boat, which was rowed by a woman, it came from the opposite side and took us over. It was the breadth of a mile for two pence. These laborious employments of the female sex are not uncommon in Scotland, but more particularly characterise the Highlands. They are to be considered as the most striking remains of barbarism in that country. Ouch! Well, Jenny, are you feeling barbaric today? I don't know. I only feel barbaric when I'm packing my bags in little, Annie. (laughs) I can't believe there are any complaints from this man when he's getting a ferry ride for two pence. I looked it up and he paid this woman about 40 pence for this boat ride. So, I don't know, Annie. I feel like he can just row, row, row his boat back to wherever he came from. Well, he can row it back to the past, which is where he came (laughs) from, Jenny. We've been keeping an eye out for women cropping up in old nature writing as part of our Radical Mountain Women series that's funded by the Royal Society of Literature. Yes, and so in this episode, we're going to be getting in this lady's rowboat on the shores of Loch Fyne, complimenting her strong forearms and paying her well. And on our journey across the water, we're going to be finding out some weird and wild stories all about Loch Fyne. Loch Fyne is just over an hour northwest of Glasgow. It is a long, bandy, thin sea loch that opens out between the Isles of Arran and Rothsay and into the Firth of Clyde. I came across some lovely descriptions of the loch and surrounding environment that paint a gorgeous picture of the area. Jenny, what do some 19th century writers have to say about Loch Fyne? Clachens are sprinkled around the shores of Loch Fyne, clusters of thatched cottages betwixt the rocky beach and the high roads. Tourists watch the house's white walls dotting the distant hillside. There's a kale yard stocked with potatoes and greens, currants and gooseberry bushes, and perchance an apple or plum tree too. Cockerels and hens are scratching the earth among the black fishing nets, which are drying on poles in the sun. On the right towers the haunted hill of the She, the hill of the fairies. This is the home of the green fairies, or little folk, and its summit is crowned with a bald precipice of granite. Each house has its own horseshoe hung on a nail over the doorway, 
Well, Jenny, we know why the houses have a horseshoe up, don't we? Um, is it in case a hard partying horse loses a shoe as the clock strikes midnight at the annual harvest hay ball and it needs something to wear until its Prince Charming pony finally returns its original shoe? Um, no, Jenny, you're confusing this with Cinderella again. Oh, not again. All right. Uh, is it to protect the house's inhabitants from the fairies and other such barbaric highland creatures that we'll delve into after a wee message from our lovely sponsors? Yes. Yes, it is, Jenny. The iron in the horseshoe is thought to be protective against fairies and bring good luck. All right. Second guess, lucky. <laughs> Cinderella always throwing me <laughs> off. Big thanks to our sponsors of this episode, Weebox, who managed to pack the joy and excitement of this beautiful country into a wonderful Weebox. Weebox is a monthly subscription gift box that is designed to share Scotland with Scots and Scots at heart all over the world. Weebox select delights that are often exclusive or can't be bought outside of Scotland. It's a fantastic gift and great value for money. Plus, Weebox supports Scottish businesses, artisans, the environment and charities too, which are all things that we adore. Visit weebox.co.uk and use code STORY10, that's STORY10, at the checkout for an exclusive discount. Yay, Weebox! Yay for Weebox! One of the funnest areas of folklore along the banks of Loch Fyne come from a woman named Janie Savila Callender. Oof, that is a private school name if ever I heard one, Annie. Well, she was published under the name Lady Archibald Campbell. That's not making it any less private school, Annie. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me, because she was married to the second son of the Duke of Argyle. Ah. It's actually quite a sad story how she became entwined with the Argyle family. Janie was orphaned age four, and so she became a ward of the Duke of Argyle, and then ended up marrying one of his sons. Oh, sounds like Cinderella. <laughs> <laughs> Can... <laughs> Can you guess where they lived, Jenny? Um, was it literally in Loch Fine? Think about sending Loch Fine to a private school, then what does it become? Mm, no, you're right. Okay, Loch Fine doesn't have a billiard room. So I'm going to go with the imposing Inverary Castle, which towers over the shores of Loch Fine. Bingo. Hey. Victorian high society really fond over Jenny, also known as Lady Archibald Campbell. And at the start of the 20th century, she begins publishing her writing in a magazine called The Occult Review. Oh, now that is my kind of review. <laughs> the ghoulish whales were scary, but it would have invoked far more terror had they been in the wee hours of the night rather than during Coronation Street. Overall ghost rating, 6 out of 10. <laughs> So while the Occult Review does cover a wide range of otherworldly topics, Lady Archibald Campbell writes a lot about fairies. And she does seem to have a genuine belief in the supernatural. I find the way she approaches folklore both eccentric and intriguing, 
though very different to how I think myself or Jenny would approach folklore. To be fair, I would love if someone called us eccentric and intriguing, so I think we can be same vein, different amount of exclamation points. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, her writing is very passionate and very liberal with the use of exclamation marks. <laughs> Jenny, do you know how to be a lady with a capital L? Oh, Annie, I think I do. Well then, can you tell us about the fairies of Loch Fine? I feel like I was born to play this part. A posh occultist orphan from a castle on a loch in the 1900s. <laughs> yeah, you can tell by the way that you burn your fragrant oils in that skull-shaped burner. That's a family heirloom. <laughs> so let's hear this in Lady Archibald Campbell's words. Ancient people. Everlasting deathless People, riders in green through fairy, haunters of endless woods, hills and glens in the Highland spirit world, hidden, quiet people, men of peace. I'll be honest, Annie, I have no idea what I am whimsically yelling about. <laughs> so you're talking about fairies and you're calling these fairies men of peace. This comes from a translation of Dunyashi, which is Gaelic for fairy people or people of the other world. The she part of this can translate to both peace and fairy in Scottish Gaelic. And then the Dunya is the bit that means people. So I generally go with the translation people of the fairy mound, but I do enjoy that men of peace sounds almost threatening. We are the men of peace, and you will be peaceful. <laughs> but she just means fairies. Peaceful fairies. <laughs> Near the very nests of the wild ones I used to adore at my lovely highland home, the unseen forces are still at work. There is the cairn with a white phantom hair, which the people call Breejack, a fairy guardian always appeared at nightfall. This ghostly hair appeared before the lonely piper, lightening his steps home through the dangerous glen by the whiteness of its coat as it jumped to the wail of his pipes, out of mist and into mist again. Wow, Jenny, if we had a penny for every lonely piper who followed a ghostly hair or alternative rodent to either safety or fairyland, then we would have... Uh, enough money to take at least three rides on the ferry across Loch Fine in 1800s. Maybe four rides if the fairy woman likes us, which I think she would. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jenny, stop touching her muscles. But the arms, Annie. <laughs> oh, you're so strong. You're so good at rowing. Oh, carry me across this loch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're definitely only getting three rounds. <laughs> now let's get back to Lady Archibald Campbell's fairy stories. Remember, she calls the fairies men of peace, and then sometimes she calls them hosts, wild ones, and green people. She's really one for the synonyms, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> she is, she is. She's got a whole thesaurus. <laughs> they are never was a more picturesque old man than the one on Loch Fineside called the Fairy Man. 
He was called this because of his second sight, or two sights, and resulting acquaintance with the green people. He lived across Loch Fyne near the Hill of Hosts. As I go back in thought some years ago, I see him sitting by me on the hillside, on that glowing, peaceful day of August, when we talked about the men of peace. He was a man of peace among men of peace, if you see what I'm saying. What she's saying is that this is an old man. She's not saying that he's a fairy, but she's saying that he's called the fairy man because of his alleged second sight. Alleged. Go on, Annie. Give him the benefit of the doubt. (laughs) (laughs) A mist of white hair rested on his bent shoulders. He had fine, clear-cut features, strongly marked eyebrows, and a thoughtful face full of genius. (laughs) Is she describing me, Annie? (laughs) All you have is the untamed eyebrows, Jenny. I'll take it, yeah. (laughs) He was dressed in a homespun garment of an ethereal blue, pale like the distant hills, towards which he gazed with a far-off look, as if he saw then these very hosts marching against the ridge of sky. The fairies have certainly welcomed him since. He spoke gravely, slowly, and with the reiteration he felt necessary for my understanding and his own want of confidence in a different language to his native Gaelic. He spoke in a rise and fall of tones, every syllable distinct and striking, a musical note on the ear. He tells me of memories that stir his soul to its very foundations. He tells stories of a land under waves, of the sublime many-coloured mountains discovered in the depths of Loch Fyne, the scented memories born in the sweet bog myrtle from the hill, the thousand symphonies faltered by little hidden springs whose source is deep and unknown, the fairy man in blue with the faraway eyes, the voice that is silent would not be there. In his own words... Word for word, as I took them down that day, I give you his story. It would not be long since that, in the gloaming, I was up in the fairies now in Struchar. I went up there to get a sight at the blast at Furness from over Loch Fyne. I thought this sounded a little bit strange, that our old man is going up a wee hill to see a blast. I looked up what he's talking about and it seems that there were actually quite a few big blasts in the area because there's a granite quarry at Furness. Ah okay so he's going up the hill to watch explosions at the quarry. Yes exactly so for example in October 1852 there was a monster gunpowder blast fired using a galvanic battery. They used three tons of blasting powder to make these explosions, and apparently locals reacted with a mixture of great terror and great excitement, but none of them wanted to be in the vicinity when this blast was happening. So all the locals decided that it would be best if they just watched this big blast from the nearby hills 
and so they all climbed local hills to get a viewpoint of the the blasting from a safe distance. The newspapers of the time called it the Highland Vesuvius, so they were expecting this to look almost volcanic. Annie, we are quite literally about to descend into the world of fairies and you're getting distracted with a quarry explosion. But the controlled blast tore up around 8,000 tonnes of granite, Jenny. Okay, yeah, that is an impressive amount of granite. I will give you that. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose this was like the Marvel movies of the time. And obviously a big fan of action films, our wizened Highlander decided to watch from his fairy now. Now I went forward till I came to the top. And I was barely there a few minutes when something very strange appeared before me. Where I stood, straight out of the hill, a horse appeared. It was jet black and upon it sat a rider in green. But not just any green. It was a beautiful green. Then more and more and more again appeared, till, if I mind right, I saw four score or more beautiful big black horses with their riders, ladies and gentlemen too, all dressed in green, in the most spectacular green. Four score is 80, so our wee man is saying that he's witnessed approximately 80 fairies on horseback. The jackets upon them had a tail at the back, and on their heads they wore green bonnets with tassels which looked like they might be made of the moss cotton of the hill. And oh, my heart stops for the music they had. This was music surpassing any I had ever heard. It was the bagpipe sound, but the notes were far, far sweeter. I heard them talking too in Gaelic, and very pleasant they were to each other. When one came forward, it might have been their chief, and asked me in Gaelic, What sends you here? I replied, I came to get a sight of the blast at Furness, yonder over the loch. And I watched them from where I stood. They formed into a square, and with never a sound, went through manoeuvres more splendid than I ever saw the like. And then they prepared to march, and with never a broken rank among them, they marched away quite out of view with their sweet music playing all the while. I could not see nor tell wherever they went. From while they were there to when they were away, might be three quarters of an hour. I am seventy-five years of age, you can hear it in my voice, and that might be nine or ten years since I heard of the fairies. They call them the persons of peace. Well, I can say for sure... For what I saw that day, they were not of this earth whatsoever. They were all young, all young and hearty. They looked quite content, so they did, quite hearty. Beautiful men and women too. I saw them, I heard them, and I watched them. Yonder in the gloaming at the top of the now. So that was an incredible blast. Eight thousand tons of granite. Oh, I'll be honest with you, lass, that wasn't really the point of the story. <laughs> but it it was pretty cool, why? <laughs> <laughs> I mind, too, an occasion 
when I was seeing them at the break of day as the sun was rising. That was in Glen Sheelish at the back of the ferry now, when I was tending the sheep, you see. And there they were. The fairies were on a march down Tom of Oren. That's where they were saying that the Queen of the Fairies keeps her palace. But I have ne'er seen the Queen of the Fairies. I have seen them by moonlight too, but never so clear as what I saw in the gloaming. That was a sight I will never forget. Let's unpick this gorgeous folklore. Our wee old man is explaining to Lady Archibald Campbell that the best time of day to see the fairies is the gloaming hour. Now gloaming is a Scots word, it's usually used for twilight, just as the sun is setting, and in the context here that's definitely what our Highlander means. However, gloaming can also be used in the half-light of morning sunrise. I feel like this is a Stories of Scotland approved top tourist tip for fairy sighting. If you're trying to see fairies, you gotta wait for the gloaming hour. However, I do think there's something much more important that we need to look at here, Annie. And what's that, Jenny? All right, just just imagine it, right? You're in a wee army of 80 fairies and you're all wearing your little tiny fairy bonnets and your little green fairy coats. Okay, I'm buying this. I'm a fairy. All right. And you're out at marching band practice for the evening and you're, you're feeling good. You know, you guys are hitting every beat. All this band practice is really starting to pay off. You guys are going to crush regionals this year. Everyone's on a high, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, and then this wee old man tells you that he's watching a hill across the loch about to be blasted. Okay. Well, you're a fairy, Annie. Fairies live in the hills. Would you not be a bit concerned about the gigantic explosion bringing down 8,000 tons of granite into your fairy neighbor's billiard room? Oh, mm. you're right. I mean, I might have to get my neighbors a wheelbarrow for all that granite. <laughs> but I don't think we need to worry. Highlanders and islanders do tend to avoid digging into known fairy mounds. So the quarry was likely an uninhabited hill. How do we know that? How do we know it's an uninhabited hill, though? Well, generally, you get a lot of fairy folklore around areas with bronze or Iron Age archaeology. So humans wouldn't put a quarry under a broch or a chambered cairn because they recognise that these are special places. Okay. And they don't want to disturb the fairy folk. Mm, Okay, another excellent Stories of Scotland tourist tip there. Thank you, Annie. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if I recall, Lady Archibald Campbell thought that the low entrances of a lot of these Iron Age buildings were in fact evidence that very small people lived inside them. The fairies must have lived in there because the doors are small. Yes, so if anyone's ever seen rocks or chambered cairns, they know how narrow the entrances can be. But I'm not sure if I agree with Lady Archibald Campbell's theories on this. What? (laughs) Human height does fluctuate over time. It goes up and down based on a lot of different factors, including environment, nutrition, lifestyle, industrial shifts, everything. I tried looking up the average heights of Iron Age and Bronze Age people in Scotland, and I got into this strange pattern of finding skeletons that turned out to be taller than myself. (laughs) So 
I'm five foot four and many of the Iron Age and Bronze Age skeletons are taller than me. So it gave me a bit of a complex. <laughs> you have an Iron Age deficiency complex. <laughs> <laughs> Iron Age people were generally a couple of inches shorter than people nowadays. But the entranceways to their buildings were much lower than this. So they would have to be entering rocks and cairns by crawling. So what you're saying is if we extrapolate this, then this means that fairies are now taller than you. Because that puts Tinkerbell in a whole new terrifying light. 8 out of 10 in the occult review. (laughs) No, what I'm saying is that these ancient buildings were not built with small doors to either accommodate giant fairies or tiny people. The entrances are low for a few reasons. Structurally, a larger entranceway is weaker when working with dry stone buildings of this size. So if you've got a smaller entrance, you've got a stronger building. Mm. It also would have helped to keep the heat in and the rain out. Ah, I guess that makes sense. (laughs) But the hill that the fairies did live in on the shores of Loch Fyne is called the Sheehan Sluai, which translates to the fairy now. It sits on the south side of the loch between two small villages and it sticks out oddly among the generally gentle hills of the area. This is because it's an igneous intrusion in the bedrock. Igneous rock tends to be hard and tough and so while the surrounding rock eroded away, this little blob of igneous rock remained, just waiting for some fairies to come and carve out its middle and have endless kailies inside it. I love how we see the landscape and lore intertwine and create stories that last hundreds of years. It's a beautiful pattern that we see again and again in Gaelic culture. And rather than barbaric, the folk who lived around this fairy hill would have treated it with the utmost respect. The fae can be friends or foe or something in between. They loved their music and dancing. But woe be the weary traveller who crosses paths with a fairy on the way to band practice. I just want to know how our fairy army did at the regionals. <laughs> oh, they smashed it, Annie. They smashed it out of the park. Honestly, they still talk about it today. Award is central in their little fairy hill trophy room. It's really, oh, it's great. You should have been there, honestly. What a day. I'm coming, I'm, I'm bringing me to tears just thinking about it. <laughs> For our next foray into the weirdness around Loch Fyne, we're sticking with the Campbell family, but we're moving over to Captain Campbell of Stonefield Castle. Stonefield Castle is much closer to the mouth of the loch than where Our Lady Campbell was based. And instead of a fairy story, this one is a little bit spooky. Occult review, Annie, what'd you give me out of 10 for my spooky spookiness? Um maybe a five out of ten wow okay that was disappointing that hurt all right i feel that though you extended out the o's you still sounded distinctly alive Mm. and not very ghoulish at all okay well thank you for the feedback i'm gonna go cry myself to sleep now but i'm i'll pull myself together tomorrow and start working on it again (laughs) (laughs) captain campbell and his wife were staying in the highlands of argyleshire 
when he regaled his friends with this supernatural story. Five out of ten as well, Annie, all right? If I can't get away with mine, neither can you. (laughs) (laughs) One crisp autumn morning, Captain Campbell was heading out for a grouse shoot on the moors. But not the nearby moors, the faraway moors. The moors beyond the hills. His path led along the shore of Loch Fyne, past a little pier and a low wall protecting him from the waves. Under this wall, the fishing boats of his tenants were moored. These folk daily sought the famous herrings of Loch Fyne's waters for their livelihood. As he passed this low wall, he saw four men he knew well, preparing their nets for a day of fishing. The day, however, was boisterous. The wind moaned along the shore, and the white-crested waves rolled in, angrily striking against the wall. Captain Campbell halted for a few moments, and wished the men a good haul and safe sailing before carrying on his way. The men all tipped their hats and continued with their work. All day he was deep in land, out on the moors. The wind rose, and stormy gusts of rain swept over the water and carried over the land, drenching Captain Campbell and keeping all the grouse well hidden in the heather. As he returned was nothing in his pockets but puddles, he again took the coast road, even though it was the long way home. He told his friends that he felt a strange necessity to do so. He could not explain it to himself at the time and could not explain it now. For despite being desperate for a warm fire and a warmer dram, he followed his feet. The sea was now very rough and lashing furiously against the low wall. The sun was setting below a bank of lurid clouds, but in the flurry of the rain, wind and waves, he saw four figures leaning against the wall, as if resting, their forms and faces lit by the sickly sunshine. Captain Campbell recognised them immediately. It was the same four men he had spoken with in the morning. Being late, he did not stop, but merely bade them good night in passing, and he scarcely noticed that they neither raised their caps to him nor bade him good night. As he entered the enclosed court of the castle, his wife ran out to meet him, exclaiming, Oh, dearest Campbell, how thankful I am you have returned. The most dreadful accident has happened. A boat has capsized in a sodden squall near the shore. Four fine men are all drowned, and the poor wives are almost mad with grief. Impossible, my dear, replied Captain Campbell. I have just this instant seen those very men standing by the low wall at the jetty. Seen them? cried his wife. It is but an hour ago their bodies began to drift onto the beach, and one is still missing. The morning tide is expected to bring him in. The boat capsized in the bay. It was distinctly seen by the watchers. A cold wave of realisation washed through his body, freezing him from the inside out. For Captain Campbell now understood that the forms he had seen were not the young men, but rather the wraiths of the drowned men, watching one last sunset before departing this realm for good. 
Once Campbell had collected himself, he put on his best hat, went back out into the rain, and made his way down to the village to comfort the widows. These poor men and their wives, tragedies like this often struck coastal fishing communities, and sometimes they create these stories of eerie sightings and lots of omens around them. I think it's almost a cliché that fishing communities are especially superstitious. The second sight is often associated with death and passing on. We see tales of ghostly funeral processions walking out of a house in the gloaming, only for the house owner to die suddenly the next day. Or we hear of someone with the second sight reading omens that tell of a death that is soon to come, or has already happened, but the news is yet to reach folk. I think it's really interesting to compare the second sight of the wee manny we heard in the first tale, who was, you know, blathering with the fairies, to Captain Campbell and his vision of ghosts. I think it shows us some of the ideas about class and superstition, in that our wee old man who lives by the loch is quite happy to accept that he has the second sight and he can speak to fairies. But Captain Campbell, it doesn't seem that this kind of experience comes naturally to him at all. In folklore, the second sight works in very mysterious ways, and it often descends on people only once in their lives, pulling back the beaded curtain between the worlds of life and death or the world of the mundane and supernatural only very briefly, as with Captain Campbell. So take heed, if you are travelling in the Scottish Highlands, especially around Loch Fyne, where the sight seems common, that although you may have no prior spooky spectral sightings, the veil is always twitching in the winds, and the wet Atlantic winds seem more likely to blow it open and reveal the unfortunate souls passing between, or the fairies dancing around. And it seems for us, this veil has blown open and revealed a little advert from our kind sponsors. A big thanks to our sponsors of this episode, Weebox, who managed to pack the joy and excitement of this beautiful country into a wonderful Wee Box. Wee Box is a monthly subscription gift box that is designed to share Scotland with Scots and Scots at heart all over the world. Weebox select delights that are often exclusive or can't be bought outside of Scotland. It's a fantastic gift and great value for money. Plus, Weebox supports Scottish businesses, artisans, the environment and charities too, which are all things that we adore. Visit weebox.co.uk and use code STORY10, that's STORY10, at the checkout for an exclusive discount. Yay, Weebox. Yay for Weebox. Jenny, do you remember the woman who rode the ferry boat at the beginning of the episode? Yes, I do remember her. I feel like it's very unfair for us to only see her through the eyes of a wealthy man who considers her making an honest income to be barbaric. Yeah, no, I agree. But I also feel like this man would consider most of our lives barbaric. 
Why, in the Highlands, they allow their womanfolk to get excited about 8,000 tons of granite. It's a monstrous country. (laughs) (laughs) By now we've learned that Loch Fyne is an enchanted place, inhabited by fairies. So, I think it might be nice to weave this story of our fairy woman, Roar, into the mythology of the loch. Alright, okay, let's give it a go. Um, But since we know nothing about her, this might take a fair dollop of creative license. Yes. So, to be explicit, we're beginning with a real flesh and blood person, but we don't even have a name for her so it's almost impossible to do any research on her life. But with a little bit of creativity, we can make this story work. What's her name, Jenny? Let's call her Flora. Flora the fairy woman. I'm on board with Flora. What else do we need to know about her? Uh, Her arms. Her arms? Yeah, all the roars I know have the strongest forearms in the universe. All right then. Flora worked at rowing the ferry at Loch Fine, and she had arms as strong as oak trees. Wait, wait, wait. Make it arms as strong as rowan trees. That's a harder wood. Plus it sounds more magical. Plus she's rowing and they're rowing, so you know, it's a little wordplay. That is a clever wordplay, Jenny. Thank you. <laughs> we know that Flora earned two pennies for rowing the boat. This is not a lot of money at all. To put it into context of the time, a loaf of bread in Edinburgh in 1800 would cost about 14 pence for a quartern loaf, which for us would be a large loaf. But grain prices were really fluctuating at this time. It means that our flora needs to take multiple passengers and journeys to be able to survive. She'll also be living as part of a family or household who can help support her livelihood working-class people of this time needed to live in family units to be able to afford to live at all. We also know that she'll be part of the rural labouring class, otherwise she wouldn't be rowing the ferry at all. All right, so let's say Flora was part of a family of cotters who lived in a small house rented from a big estate. Her only brother worked the land and her two sisters helped him and also spun. Her father had been working the ferry boat, but he had passed away. And after her father's death, her brother inherited the tenancy to the croft, and Flora took up the oars on the ferry boat. And this is how Flora gained her arms as strong as rowan trees. She ferried across anyone who needed to take advantage of the good, clean shortcut across the loch. This wasn't a normal life for a woman, but... She was exceptional at rowing. Okay, so now that we've got Flora, I think we need to add the fairies. Perhaps the fairies admire her big tree-strength arms. I know I do. Perfect. So the fairies of the fairy now watched in awe at Flora's hard work at the ferrying. But they felt dreadfully sad for her since the death of her father, who had died whilst out fishing in bad weather. The fairy folks did not like to watch families repeat their mistakes across different generations. And so, they came to Flora and they offered her a deal. She would pay them one of her shiniest pennies a day, 
and they would guarantee her safe travel across the waters of Loch Fyne. And it worked. Flora would dutifully leave a penny in her boat at the end of each day, just as the evening was setting in. And the fairies would caper along and collect it in the twilight hour. In return, whenever the loch was in turmoil on a windy day, spinning around like the inside of a washing machine, the waters around her boat would remain calm. She never had to row against the weather, and no storm clouds ever appeared when she was mid-loch. Locals said it was the fairies, and outsiders said that she just had good luck with the fairy. But then, one evening, a passing fisher docks up his boat next to Flora's, and he sees the shiny wee penny left behind. You see, the fairies hadn't had time to gather the coin just yet. And this fisher, well, he thinks to himself, that's just fallen out of someone's pockets, and it might as well go towards my dinner. So he takes the penny for himself. Oof, not a good decision. For fairies get furious when a deal is broken. And upon finding no payment in the boat, they turn the loch onto a full extra spin cycle. They summon up a great storm that wreaks havoc on the shores of Loch Fine. Days go by, and all the boats are struggling to do anything in the weather. But some of the fishers had no choice, for they had to make a living. And so four of them go out together, hopeful that the storm will cease. But it does not. And tragically, their boat capsizes, and they are all lost to the loch. Flora despairs. She desperately leaves pennies in her wee boat, but the fairies are no longer collecting them. And so, one evening, she waits in the boat in the twilight, hoping to speak to the Queen of the Fairies. It's the gloaming hour, and the storms are still horrible and relentless. Our Flora gets soaking wet and is shivering cold while she waits for the Fairy Queen. Now the Fairy Queen sees her out in the boat and decides to see what Flora has to say for herself. But seeing her in such distress, the Queen takes pity and decides to suggest a new deal with Flora. They will take a penny a day still, but for the missed payment there will be a fine, and that fine is... Burying the souls of any of the fishers lost in Loch Fine back to shore, and bringing these souls to the fairy now, where they can dance with the supernatural people who live under the hill. And she has to start that very night. With the four fishers whose boat had capsized that day. In the middle of the storm-turned loch. Surely this is a cursed task. But the fairies charge a high price when they feel scorned. And Flora is brave. The fairy queen gives her an enchanted net. And don't forget, Flora has arms as strong as rowan trees. And so Flora does what she knows best. She rows the fairy boat. When she reaches the most dangerous waters of the loch, she pulls out the small net. After a few moments... She feels some tension caught inside. Something is wrapped in the fairy spells of the net. One by one, she pulls up the souls of the lost fishers from the dark waters. One, two, and three. 
they sit silently in her boat. They are not cold from the icy waters of the loch. They are just lost and transparent spirits. You see, ghosts often look confused because they are weighed down by one of the biggest questions of living. What comes after life? She hauls in the fourth soul of the final lost fisher. They are all quiet and still in the boat until she takes the last of the net from overboard and puts it down in the boat. Suddenly the fishers jump to action and they seize the net. Flora's baffled. She's found all four souls. What are they doing? Yet with years of experience of handling the nets, the spirits of the four fishers set out the net one final time into the loch. And just as the net hits the water, the storm settles and everything is still. The moonlight glimmers on Loch Fine. This little ferry boat with one woman and four ghosts floats atop the waters. Then Flora jumps as something suddenly pulls against the net. The fisher ghosts hold it steadily and slowly draw it in, cautiously and softly. Inside the net is another soul. Dripping wet, shimmering in the moonlight. Flora's heart skips a beat. And she recognises her father. He smiles and nods at her warmly. And she rows them all across the loch to the fairy knoll. She feels the tragedy of the situation heavily. But she has a new duty now. As well as the ferrying of living souls... She must ferry those of the dead. As the spirit of her father waves goodbye to her, she knows that she is strong enough for this job. The midnight ferrying of the souls over to the fairy knoll. She knows she's strong enough because she has arms as strong as rowan trees. And the loch is still again. Flora returns home, leaving a penny in her boat for the fairies. And that, Annie, is how you tie three stories together like a pro. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that story was inspired by the woman who rode the fairy. The fairy story and the ghost story that we've had today. Um, But it's also from a strange little fragment I found that described a phantom road running up the banks of Loch Fine that appears on no maps and showed only in the moonlight. And I thought it would be intriguing if we turned this road into a rowboat. Well, Annie, the occult review were very impressed and they give it a 9 out of 10. What What did we lose that one point for? Uh, there was not enough ghostly wailing in it for oh. their liking. That's a basic error. Okay, thanks for the feedback. No worries, we'll get another one soon. (laughs) Well, we'll definitely need to return to the shores of Loch Fine soon. There were so many stories of this magical place. It really seems like a hub for the mysterious in Scotland. Yes, but we'll return not as ghosts, but as living, breathing podcasters. At least two out of three of them. (laughs) And on that note, 
thank you all so much for listening and a huge thank you to all of our patreons old and new you guys are keeping our little boat afloat on Loch Fine. if you enjoy this podcast and would also like to help keep us floating along then you can head over to our patreon and sign up you get lots of little Scottish stories and fun facts, all the while supporting your favourite independent podcasters. So a very warm welcome to Nicole, Jessica, Ellen, John, Anastasia, Anne, Jason and Karen. This week, I would like to send you all in a wee time machine back a couple of millennium to a mythological time when Scotland and all of the Celtic nations were inhabited by giants. Now this is because the hills around Loch Fyne were known as hunting grounds for giants and we'll get to those stories one day. But for now, I like to think of you all as these giants. You leap from hillock to mountain you pick up the wild wolves that are roaming Scotland at this time, as though they are the size of mice, and you tickle their fluffy little wolf bellies in the palm of your hand. <laughs> you grow giant gardens of heather on the mountainside, and you cultivate humongous giant-sized strawberries that you use to make your giant jam and you eat with your giant cream scones. You win the gold medal at the giant farmers show jam contests. That's a tough competition as well. Don't underestimate your opponents on that one. <laughs> at night, you reach your giant hands into the skies and you play games with the stars. And it really annoys people out on the sea because they are trying to get home. <laughs> <laughs> you rework the constellations so that they look more like the things that they are meant to represent. But whenever you turn away, a different giant realigns them. You ignore that giant. They're just jealous of your jam recipe. You see other giants getting involved in the wars of the giants, but you do not get involved in any of that because you and your giant pals avoid the drama and stick with the strawberry giant jammer that is that is enough jam for this episode thank you all for your lovely messages on all of our socials and emails we are a little bit slow at responding at the moment because we've got very full inboxes right now but we're trying to get through everyone so thank you all for your messages and we're trying to respond. Until next time, beautiful people, Slangeva. Slangeva. <laughs>
Is it pronounced no. fairy now or fairy no? Fairy now. Fairy now? Okay. Yeah. And the area, is it Cairn Dow or Cairn Do? Um, just Cairn Do. Cairn Do? Yeah. Oh, that is brilliant. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for your polite okay. post office help. Would it be okay if I popped this recording in the blooper reels? Because it's so embarrassing having to phone up to ask for a place name. Um, yeah, sure, that's okay. Oh, thank you so much. You have a lovely day now. Thank you. Cheerio, bye. <laughs> well, Jenny, are you feeling barbaric today? I don't know. I only feel barbaric when I'm packing my bags in Lidl, Annie. <laughs> Jenny, that's because you put the fragile fruits underneath the heavy vegetables. Actually, I have a very, very intricate system for packing bags and I get really annoyed when it's not followed properly and vegetables do end up getting squashed by large square things that are perfect for corners. <laughs> anyway. It's when people put cans and vegetables into the same bag. <laughs> the ghoulish whales were scary, but it would have invoked far more terror had they been in the wee hours of the night rather than during Coronation Street. Overall, ghost rating, 6 out of 10. <laughs> Could you change Coronation Street for something that's on Netflix? Because then it's more accessible for everyone. Oh, but that's what makes Coronation Street so funny. Because also, like, Netflix isn't on at a time. <laughs> so the joke revolves around the TV schedule, revolves around a wee old person sitting down with their dinner every night to watch Coronation Street. Believe me, the joke holds up. Okay. She can translate to both peace and fairy in Scottish garlic. And then (laughs) Dunya. You said Scottish garlic? (laughs) The finest garlic you can get, folks. I would. Old, old wee man. I love that it's you getting excited about granite for once. <laughs> We've swapped places, Jenny. 8,000 tons of granite. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, Captain Campbell and his wife. There's a seagull. It's the ghost of Captain Campbell's wife. <laughs> Seven out of ten. I, I think it's hungry. <laughs> for souls <laughs> and it seems for us this veil has blown open and revealed 8,000 tons of granite <laughs> <laughs> and she recognises her father dun 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 <laughs> <laughs> no worries we'll get another one soon <laughs> Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was too busy wailing to see my light. <laughs> Classic Jenny. <laughs> what am I like? 